The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. My name is Dave Goldberg and I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow a live tweeting of the show at hashtag Big Beacon Radio. And today I'm, I'm super excited. Um, we've got one of the pioneers, one of the giants in uh, modern motivation theory with us. We've got uh, Professor uh, Edward Deasy from the University of Rochester. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's just uh, excited to have you here. I, I first came to learn of your work, like many people, through uh, Dan Pink's uh, popularization uh, in the book uh, – uh, drive and and your ideas have been foundational to the things that we're trying to do in transforming engineering education and uh, and higher education and we'll dig into some of that but Ed you've you've had a, a career that goes back uh, to the late sixties uh, uh, early seventies and and um, just curious what what were some of the early influences that led you um, led you down the the path that you ended up taking. Well, I think what it really boils down to is I've been following my interests, and my interests have changed and taking me different places, but I never did an awful lot of planning. I just kind of did what was emerging and interesting. So I went to college, and I was a math major. I, I liked math. But while I was there, um, I also did some, um, I took psychology as a distribution requirement. I think I probably had, I don't know, five or six semesters of it. Mm -hmm. um, I found that interesting, but it took me a long time to realize that it could be a vocation. I always thought of it as an avocation to something that was interesting. And... Um, <clears throat> So I graduated from college, and um, another thing I had studied in college was art history. So I decided to go to London for a year to study art history and economics. And um, <laughs> it was interesting, so I continued it, and they've both been important in my life ever since. 
But it was when I came back from London and did an MBA at the Wharton School. During that time that I studied industrial organizational psychology, and it suddenly dawned on me that this is something that could be a career. So I finished up the MBA and went and got a master's and PhD in psychology. And um, that's, that's how it got started, and I've been with it ever since. When I applied to graduate school, I wrote an essay saying that I was interested in motivation. I didn't really know what that meant, but I liked the word and I liked the notion. And I didn't realize that there really wasn't a field of motivation in psychology in 1970. That had died when the cognitive revolution happened in the 1950s. But fortunately, um, I was admitted to graduate school anyway, and I got a great mentor, Victor Vroom, who's an organizational psychologist. That's not what I studied particularly, but um, he had written a book on motivation and organizations, and so he was quite willingly supporting me to... um, to get into motivation, and and one of the things he said was, if that's what interests you, then do it, and go wherever you need to to find relative information. It might be in other in other fields, or, but wherever it is, get what you need and do what you want. And so, that's what I've been doing ever since, and I will be forever grateful to Victor for the support and mentoring that he gave me. That's such a, there's so many interesting elements in that story. I I guess I was, I was unaware that, that, that your um, educational path took, took this path through economics, art history, and then the MBA and then back, you know, from organizational back to um, pure psychology, but then you know, having an advisor with with practical leanings like that was probably pretty important. Uh, if if there wasn't really an established field, then it's kind of, you know sometimes it's hard. You know, okay, a graduate student's not going to go off and and establish a field that's not established. So, kind of having that that freedom sounds uh, super important to to it your was, path. It was fabulous. Yeah, it, it was very. Um, he was very encouraging, and so each thing I found and got excited about, he was right there with me. Well, and 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 those were those were, um, and I and I I remember you know I was a I was a a, a freshman at the University of Michigan in seventy one, and I and I remember talking to my friends who were taking psychology and there was still pretty strong behaviorism hanging around and and you know s- some of the things that you ended up doing were pretty counter psychological culture at the time if i'm not mistaken is that is that a fair assessment um i would say that's true um one of the interesting things to me was that when i was an undergraduate i i was in i went to hamilton college which was bf skinner's alma mater and um, all of the psychology courses that were taught at Hamilton at that time were taught as operant psychology classes, including personality, abnormal psychology, 
our introductory psychology was a year-long course, and in addition to the classes, I had a three-hour lab every week, Wednesday afternoon, in which I went to the lab, got my rat out of its cage, put it in a Skinner box, and conditioned it on some schedule or other. So um, that's really the first thing I knew about psychology, and I found that interesting. Um, But later I came to realize that although it is interesting, um, it really failed to grapple with a lot of the kinds of issues that seemed most interesting to me. Yeah, and I'm as and I'm hearing in that and and in in your writing there's a strong emphasis on empiricism and experimentation which mm-hmm. was probably came from watching those rats do their thing at least in part but but Absolutely. uh you, that is Yeah, but so Yeah. Well, very cool. And then so okay, so your and this was uh your uh your graduate work in psychology was at Carnegie Mellon and Right. and and uh and some of our listeners are familiar with the uh, um, um, some of the 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 soma cubes and things like that mm-hmm. that you did but you know it, um, uh, when you uh, when you performed those experiments and started to do that what was the you know again this kind of again it's sort of counter the culture mm-hmm. uh, how did people how did people accept your work on intrinsic motivation and and different well, reward schedules in the it, soma cube experiments it varied um, behaviorism by this time this time was i was a graduate student from 1967 to 1970 so okay. during that late um 60s period Behaviorism had really lost hold of academic psychology because cognition was taking over. Um, But behaviorism as behavior modification was still very prominent in all of the applied domains in the world, practically. So it, it was a big thing, and a lot of people had learned and studied um, operant psychology and believed that that really was the nature of human beings. I agree with the operant theorists that it's possible to control people or rats or pigeons or whatever, but I think that's a small portion of the story of what human motivation is about. So I was reading some organizational psychology, and that's the the first place that the term intrinsic motivation appeared was in some writing of Harry Harlow's in 1950, but it got no real attention at all until fully a, a dozen years later when a few people began to pay attention to it. Robert White, for example, who was a great man and a wonderful theorist, Um, and also some organizational psychologists. And I was reading about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation in some organizational psychology books, Um, and it it seemed interesting to me. And one of the things that um, I found were some organizational psychologists who said 
there are these two kinds of motivations, so the best possible workplace would be ones in which there would be um, interesting tasks, so people would be intrinsically motivated, and then you give them what I would think of as performance contingent rewards, that is to say you give them more money for doing better work, and then you've got the, the two kinds of motivations. They'll add together and give you a maximum amount of motivation. And that was, nobody had studied that or done anything about it. It was just what these guys were saying, and people thought it made sense and were sort of accepting it. But I was thinking about it and not so sure that that really was true. So I had studied enough experimental methods that I thought, why not check it and see? Do some experiments and see whether or not it really is the case that those two kinds of motivation add together to give you total motivation and that's really what took me to the soma um, soma puzzle experiments to check uh, to see whether or not it was true what they were saying. And then, you know, for our listeners, so some of our listeners know about those, but you know, so what you know, what did you learn from yeah. the the soma okay. soma experiments? Yeah. So the question that I was really looking at is. Imagine you're doing something that's really interesting. Maybe you love to play tennis or maybe you love to sing or whatever it is. Suppose you're doing something that you find really interesting and then somebody begins to reward you for doing it. Maybe they give you money each time you win a game or some other kind of reward, some trophies and whatever it happens to be. So suppose you're doing something that interests you and then people start rewarding you for doing that activity. My question is, what will happen to your interest, to your intrinsic motivation for the activity? Will the reward enhance your intrinsic motivation and interest in the activity? Will it leave it unchanged? Or might it even undermine it? That was the question that I was trying to ask, so um, to trying to answer. So I brought um, participants into the lab, and for half of them, all of them played this interesting puzzle called SOMA. It's a kind of um, spatial relations kind of puzzle, and undergraduates who were my participants found it very interesting. So I had them come in, but I randomly assigned them to one of two groups. One group did the various puzzles, and that was it, whereas the other group did the various puzzles. Everything was the same, the same puzzles for the same amount of time and so on. The only difference was I told the one group that for each puzzle you solve, I'll give you a dollar. That was in 1969. A dollar was worth something, so it really was a reward. Sure. Um, and um, what I then did is after they finished doing the puzzles, half of whom got paid and half didn't, 
I measured the intrinsic motivation of the people in the two groups, and I found that those people who had gotten rewarded for doing the task actually subsequently found it less interesting and they were less likely to return to doing more of it when they had a free choice opportunity to do it. In other words, it had actually, the being rewarded, monetarily rewarded, undermined their intrinsic motivation for doing this activity. So that's, um, that's really where I started. Yeah, and... and and as you said, the earlier speculation on this was that they would be additive and it would sort of yeah. – and, and so this was sort of counter what people expected. Was it – you questioned so. it. Did you, did you have any sense of how it was going to turn out? I, I know you're a good experimentalist, but did you suspect that it was – that the result was going to be as counterintuitive as, as it turned out to be? No, I didn't really know what would happen. I – so – yeah. But I I thought it was a really interesting question, and I wanted to do some research, so well, it, that's what I and, did. And indeed, it and indeed it was an interesting, and it's and it's in many ways that that's opened up um, uh, a lot of a lot of your work. Um, and <clears throat> over the years, you've uh, uh, done quite a lot, and and a lot of times uh, researchers pursue. Uh, their work in isolation, but you've had a strong par- partnership uh, in your your work with uh, Richard Ryan. How did how did that come about? I do indeed. Um, Rich and I have been um, partners in this work for um, since since the late seventies. So, however long ago that is, is that thirty five years? Yeah, it must be. Yeah or more. Um, um, Rich came to the University of Rochester as a doctoral student in clinical psychology. I'm in social personality, actually, so it wasn't even in in, um, the same program, but um, he heard, uh, he he bumped into my book called Intrinsic Motivation in a used bookstore. He had known I was a faculty member here. He knew of me, but um, he looked at the book, and as he tells the story, it was all about the kinds of things that he had been thinking about as a philosophy major when he was an undergraduate. And to see somebody who was actually studying what, as we now use the term, to describe as autonomy, um, he thought, wow. And so he came to talk to me. And um, we just, in spite of his having studied philosophy and and psychoanalytic psychology as an undergraduate, whereas I was studying mathematics and um, experimental psychology sure. and physics, um, the kinds of things we thought about were so much the same things that we began working together then, right away, doing some experiments and writing a review article and so on. And um, it's been ever since that we we always come to an agreement on everything we think about. 
sometimes it takes a while to talk <laughs> it through. Sure. Um, so we each see why it looks like we might disagree initially, but we always come to an understanding of that, and and um, we've never had an unresolved um, issue that's come up. So it's been a great partnership, and we're best friends besides. Beautiful. No, and thanks for sharing. I, I know I've asked a few personal fairly personal questions. I appreciate your willingness to share these uh, these stories, are, and they're great mm-hmm. stories. And and I, I think we'll what we'll we'll take a little break now, and and uh, come and after the break, I, I think we're at a point where we need to dive into you know some of the some of your ideas in self determination theory. So what you know what is it about this these theories of motivation, and how are they different from some of the other the other theories? And so we'll. Um, uh, this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest uh, Ed DC, and in the next uh, segment, we're gonna we're gonna dive into self determination uh, theory and some of the distinctions of different types of extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Biz Locker Radio is a high-energy business show that features compelling conversations and cutting-edge business content that you can use to improve your performance today. Hosted by Kelly Riggs and presented by the Business Locker Room, Biz Locker Radio features dynamic thought leaders from sales, marketing, leadership, business strategy, social media, and more. If you're in business, you need an edge. Develop that edge with Biz Locker Radio. Tune in every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, and 3 p.m. Central on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information, visit bizlockerradio.com. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. 
1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And get a copy of the book that is transforming higher education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not for en- just for engineers anymore. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio and with our special guest, Ed Deasy. And, and uh, before the break, we were, we were talking about <clears throat> the origins of uh, Ed's uh, famous uh, experiments with the uh, Soma puzzle and, and um, how that led to this, this critical reexamination of, of motivation theory. And so, you know, Ed, so faculty often say that student is motivated or not motivated, or, or they ask, mm-hmm. how, do I, how do I motivate that student? Mm-hmm. Or I guess with right. faculty, we say, how do we get faculty buy-in? But motivation is not this. We we talk about it in this kind of simple on-off kind of way, like it's a switch that we can flip. But um, it's a good bit more complex than that, isn't it? Um, well, it is. To me, when I hear people say, "How can I motivate my daughter to be more to do her schoolwork?" or "How can I motivate my son to play fewer video games?" or whatever it is. When people talk about motivation, what they're really talking about is, uh, is motivation is as if it were a unitary concept that mm. differs only in amount. All the discussion is about amount of motivation. And yet, from the beginning, in the work that we do in self-determination theory um, and where it started, we've always believed that there were different kinds of motivation, and that it's more important to know the kind of motivation than it is the amount of motivation. So asking the question, like, how do I motivate my kid or my employee, is really the wrong question. It's, we've got to start by wondering what kind of motivation we're talking about. So, Within self-determination theory, we make a distinction between what's called autonomous motivation and controlled motivation. Autonomous motivation includes intrinsic motivation, which I've already been talking about. That's the sort of prototype of autonomous motivation. And um, controlled motivation (coughs) um, means that you're doing something Um, because you've been coerced or seduced into doing it. So you're feeling a sense of pressure and obligation. Whereas with autonomy, you're doing it with a full sense of willingness, volition, and choice. You're doing it because it's fun and interesting. That's intrinsic motivation. Or you could be doing it because it's deeply uh, of value and important to you within your own value system. So um, if something is really important to you, you believe it's important, then you'll engage in the behavior with a full sense of willingness, much like you will if it's something that's very interesting to you. Okay, so the, the interest and value are all about autonomous motivation and um, pressure and obligation are all about controlled motivation. 
So what we found is that when somebody is motivated um, in a controlled way, the consequences are very different from when they're motivated in an autonomous way. The consequences or the outcomes associated with autonomous motivation are much more positive. People perform better. They feel better. It promotes greater psychological health and well-being. They persist at the activities more. They're more creative when they do it and so on, whereas when they're controlled, that is a type of motivation, um, and the classic instance of that is the carrot and stick, the use of rewards and punishment to get people to do things, and that's what a lot of people think about as motivation. Well, it is a kind of motivation, but it's controlled motivation, and the consequences associated with controlled motivation are First off, that the quality of behavior is not as good. So autonomous motivation, when it comes to learning, for example, promotes um, conceptual understanding, deep learning, and those sorts of things. Whereas when people are, people's learning is controlled in its motivation, then they do pretty well with rote memorization, but they don't do well at all with more conceptual and deeper kinds of learning. So you can't get to that place when you just are thinking about the amount of motivation that somebody has for learning. You need to know the type of motivation that a person has for learning in order to predict about the quality of learning, whether it will be more conceptual and deeper or more um, rote and surface level. And, and, and those, you know, when starting the segment, we had those questions. All of those questions come from a place of assuming um, a kind of the, the controlled type of, of motivation that, that, and, and the person saying it is assuming that they can control the behavior of the student, right. the child, the, the colleague, whatever, whatever it is. Right. Whomever it is. Um, so it, it is true that if you, you ask the question, how can I motivate my employee or my student, that gets you right to controlled motivation. You, the teacher or the parent or whoever, is doing the motivating. In other words, is controlling that person. But when it comes to autonomous motivation, you don't think in terms of how do I motivate autonomous motivation. The appropriate question there is how do I create the circumstances within which my students will motivate themselves? Yeah. And that's a big and important question. And SDT, SDT stands for self-determination theory, um, SDT um, has an answer to that because over the course of these decades of, of doing research, we've come to believe that all human beings have a set of three basic psychological needs. There are very few psychologists that believe people have fundamental, basic, universal psychological needs. People agree that we have physiological needs. 
People agree that we need oxygen in order to be healthy. They agree that we need water in order to be healthy and so on. So people agree about the physiological level needs, but not so at the psychological level. And yet we found lots of different evidence leading us to believe that all people need to feel competent in their lives for doing some sorts of things. And if they don't, if they feel incompetent wherever they turn, it's going to have negative psychological consequences very quickly. You fail a bunch of tests and you start to feel bad. And if that keeps on going, then you feel bad about yourself. And if it keeps on going, you become depressed and so forth. All people need to feel competent. And when you feel competent or effective in what you're doing, then you're feeling very positive in terms of your affective state and and your engagement with the world around you. So I've just said the first of the three of what we believe to be universal psychological needs. The second is relatedness. Most of us come to believe that it's important that we have some close persons in our lives. It could be romantic relationships with spouses or um, partners. It could be um, best friends. But somehow we need those people that we turn to when we're feeling excited or that we, we turn to when we're feeling bad. Yes. Um, we, we need to depend on some other people. Okay, so what we're saying is we need to feel relatedness with others, a sense of belonging with others. When you feel it, there are positive consequences for psychological well-being, but when you're feeling rejected and ignored, the consequences are negative. So that's the second need. We need to feel relatedness. And the third need is autonomy. I've already said something about what autonomy is and said that there's a kind of motivation that's autonomous, but now I'm taking a step further. We in self-determination theory take a step further and say that all human beings need to feel that. They need to feel a sense of volition, of willingness and choice in their lives. And if they do, it will have positive consequences. But if they don't, there will be negative consequences. Okay, so what this boils down to is the circumstances within which students learn or our children do whatever they're doing at home, the, the circumstances need to be ones that allow them to satisfy their needs for competence, relatedness, and autonomy. And if they do, then they'll be autonomously motivated and evidence uh, a high level of psychological health and well-being. You know, it's interesting as you were talking, I was thinking about, well, what happens when these things are taken away? And when we want to punish people, we systematically withdraw one or more of these things. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. we do. No, you can't go out and see your friends. Okay, well, we'll slash the 
relatedness or you've got to do what I tell you to do, go to your room. So we're slashing the the autonomy and, and so on. Right. And, and yes, and and or um, I remember seeing a movie in which someone's ability to uh, uh, taking away someone's paints in prison was a way to punish the person. So taking withdrawing this thing that they felt competent at, or exactly. certainly the very notion of putting someone in in prison is to take away their choice. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's yeah. You know, so that's. That's it. And then in referring to this, you talked about the affective state. So underneath there's a, there's a, there, there's lots of other stuff going on and, 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 but, but it is the, the health that we're talking about is essentially, um, there's this, this underneath all of this is essentially an emotional kind of health, isn't it? Is it? There is an emotional kind of health. Um, and, and typically when I use the term, um, psychological well-being that's uh, that's encompassing the sense of emotion or affective or psychological well-being we also have um, a fair amount of research showing that there are that the degree to which these needs are satisfied um, has impact on physical health it's not just psychological but but mostly we, our own work, um, we focus a lot on the psychological level. Now, and, and when, and I, I suspect that you, you're going to take issue with this. When, you know, Dan Pink wrote Drive, he, he took your triple of, um, of uh, competence, uh, um, uh, relatedness and autonomy. He turned it into autonomy, uh, autonomy mastery, and purpose, mm-hmm. which are, are different things. And so how do you... But, you know, well, so where would you things. stick the? Yeah, how, how do you? Um, yeah, how do you see the autonomy? Uh, as he used it, and autonomy, and we used it are the same. Yep. Mastery, which he used, and competence, which yep. we use, are essentially the same thing. Yep. Um, I think he found that in. Um, I I don't really know what led him to say to say purpose or meaning instead of um, relatedness. But I think he was finding it harder to be able to talk about how relatedness functions in the, in the workplace or something. I mean, he never told me um, why he, he made that change. But uh, our belief is that meaning or purpose is not a human need. It is an outcome of the satisfaction of, of, of human needs. In other words, you will have meaning in, and purpose in your life to the degree that you feel competent, autonomous, and related to others. Um, that it's sort of like self-esteem. Some people say, well, self-esteem is a need. No, self-esteem is not a need. It's an outcome. It's a sense of well-being. Meaning and purpose are a similar kind of outcomes. They are the things that happen, which are positive things that happen when you get the basic psychological needs for autonomy, competence, and relatedness satisfied. So, I think he just wasn't thinking in those terms, and what he was doing is writing a a, a trade book for the, sure. the general public, and um, it was easier for him to to um, do it in terms of 
autonomy com- or mastery, but that's confidence yep, yep, nope. and, and and purpose. So. Well, and and no, anyways, that that's and that's helpful. And I and I and and I thought you were going to say something along those lines that that uh, you know the that your three are needs and that the purpose is is mm-hmm. uh, something that's higher higher order. So uh, we're going to take a bit of a break, but I, I want I want to uh, be at, when we come back, I want to dig into uh, some of the different flavors of extrinsic. Um, uh, motivation. Oh, Some right. of those can be self-regulated, and 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 sure. that's an interesting turn. But then then I want to like us to turn some of this as you, we started to in this segment to, towards uh, mm-hmm. towards education. education. So uh, this is Be- Beacon Radio with uh, our special guest Ed DC, and in the next se- segment we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about extrinsic motivation, and and then talk about the ways in which self determination theory can be used in thinking about education reform. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3joy website, www.3joy.com today. Biz Locker Radio is a high-energy business show that features compelling conversations and cutting-edge business content that you can use to improve your performance today. Hosted by Kelly Riggs and presented by the Business Locker Room, Biz Locker Radio features dynamic thought leaders from sales, marketing, leadership, business strategy, social media, and more. If you're in business, you need an edge. Develop that edge with Biz Locker Radio. Tune in every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, and 3 p.m. Central on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information, visit bizlockerradio.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And get the leadership coaching and faculty development and training that you need to transform higher education at your institution at 3joy.com. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with our special guest at DC. This is, I'm Dave Goldberg, and we're talking about motivation and uh, different kinds of, uh, different kinds of motivation, intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. And, 
And Ed, you were talking about this uh, um, uh, distinction between autonomous motivation and controlled motivation, yeah. and some of the flavors of extrinsic motivation can be more autonomous than yes. than others, um, and that's a, a right. bit of a twist, isn't it? It is a bit of a twist. Um, so, one of the concepts that we've known about for a long time in psychology is the concept of internalization. Children take in things that exist in the environment and take it into themselves. There's a real tendency <laughs> for children, for example, um, to be paying close attention to their parents, and they tend to take in to internalize the beliefs, the values, the um, opinions of their parents. It's a, it's a, a common process that exists as part of the developmental process. And when we were thinking about, we means Rich Ryan and myself, when we were thinking about um, um, extrinsic motivation, we raised the possibility that it might be possible to internalize extrinsic motivation. So, for example, as a, a teacher, I asked students to do something um, to engage in behaviors that would be useful in terms of learning, in my belief. Um, and what I hope is that they will internalize that so they will go on motivating themselves in relation to this behavior. Um, and so we talk about um, extrinsic motivation as being different types that have been internalized to differing degrees. Extrinsic motivation starts out as something that's external to the person. It's someone asking you to, somebody pressuring you to do something. But an internalization process allows you to get to the place where you've understood the value of the activity and therefore are quite willing to do it on your own without needing somebody else to prompt you to do it. Yes. And so autonomous motivation is really made up of intrinsic motivation, meaning doing it out of interest, and internalized extrinsic motivation, meaning to do it because you've come to value the importance of this for yourself. So... That's um, that's how extrinsic motivation can vary. So and, and so that's and and that's an interesting thing. We tend sometimes, you know, you know. So with the popularizations, there's a tendency to think, well, intrinsic good, extrinsic bad. Uh -huh. uh, let's get rid of all. But of course, that's not. You know, of course, the right. example you gave was a perfect example of. So yes, we would like you know. So a. a a faculty member who has mastered a certain uh, discipline um, to to be able to to, to take on some of uh, you know some of that knowledge and know how and and carry it forward is exactly what we're doing and that we're hoping that the person will internalize this, exactly. this extrinsic thing. Uh -huh. So it's a, it can be a good thing. Of course, nowadays we you know so we live in a world that uh, is looking for the next Steve Jobs and and uh, so and. And um, being an expert isn't isn't all that it once was with the internet and so forth. So people can get a lot of knowledge and know how out on the web. And so we 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 seem to be pushing for more creativity and doing things um, 
from your own from from your own place. And so there, then in those cases, we are, if I'm not mistaken, talking about in, intrinsic motive. Uh, no, we should be talking about extrinsic motivation, too. Um, you can be doing things in a creative way, in a fully mm-hmm. engaged and immersed way that um, are extrinsically motivated, meaning that you're doing them not because you find them interesting, but you find that you believe that they're valuable for you and for your mm-hmm. own long-term goals and so forth. Good. So um, that as long as it's it, if it's autonomous, whether it comes from intrinsic or comes from well internalized extrinsic motivation, it will still um, involve creativity, vitality, immersion, and so forth. Nice, good. So now you've been a faculty member for quite some time and and you've taught many students undergrad and and graduate students and and i'm curious the ways in which your research has affected uh, the ways you teach well i'm not sure that it has affected it very Mm. much because i'm inclined to think that i was um because i was interested in intrinsic motivation when I first found it when I was a graduate student, yep. um, I think from the beginning I've worked hard to... It, it was also a time when interesting things were going on in the world in terms of um, education. People were experimenting in education. A.S. Neal in um, England in the, the school that he ran there, for example, and and in this country, there was a lot of experimentation going on, sort of take down the walls between classrooms and so on. So there was some idea um, about intrinsic motivation, even if they didn't have words for it. But um, I think that I was, the, I, I felt simpatico with those kinds of ideas. I think there was trouble in trying to implement them, and they didn't last very long. But still, I believed in what was underlying them. And so, really, I think from the beginning, I've tried to teach in ways that were supportive of um, students' autonomous motivation. Yes, and... and so as you, you've also you know, been embedded in university environment for some, some time. And, and um, um, so using SDT as a lens, you know, what, uh-huh. how would you assess motivationally? You know, so, some, you know, so you can, to what extent are we doing a good job motivationally or using what we know about motivation in the classroom in, a, in, in an effective manner? Well, I think there's, of course, a lot of variability. So if you look across professors, um, you'll find some that are doing a lot better job than others. Sure. Um, I think certainly at the, at the um, elementary and secondary level, we're doing a pretty bad job, and we're doing a bad job in part because we're living in a time when there's this enormous pressure on um, the high-stakes tests, because it's there's a sort of international competition of who's going to have the best education in the universe, uh, the 
the United States is not on the top of that list, and that's pretty distressing to politicians and others. And so there's the tendency to turn to the controlling methods. And so that's what we're seeing through No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top and so on. We're seeing a lot of control rather than supporting of the inherent motivation that exists within all of our students. I think in college there's less of it, but there's still an, an awful lot of emphasis on tests and grades and so on. And and um, I'm, I think tests can be useful in letting students know what they're learning and what they're not. But um, just the minute we're thinking in terms of trying to control the students, which I think happens to some degree at least, then I think we're on the wrong road in terms of motivation. You were talking about the international sense of competition and and two countries of about 5 million people each that are so different and yet both score score very well. You look at Singapore on the one hand and Finland on the Uh other hand and so you have this testing mentality and and rewards and and heavy tracking in Singapore and then you have this kind of different uh, approach uh, in Finland that I would – think is more aligned with uh, some of the best parts of SDT. Is that fair? Or um, you... Yeah, I think it, it's, it is. Um, there, I, I, can't, I can't really say very much about Finland and the educational system there because I've not, um, sure. I mean, I've been to Finland, but I've not really been into the educational system in a way that I understand it. So Sure. Um, well, we don't, don't. Well, and we want to keep you on a firm empirical uh, <laughs> gr- grounding. So we, we, we got to keep those little rats in mind. But um, no. So um, well, let's 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 see if we can uh, you know draw some lessons from from the theory. So if okay. and you were saying this before, so it, it, it's it's not a it's not a matter of motivating uh, the student and controlling them. It's a matter of creating. Uh, and creating an environment, creating the circumstances that that where the the person can um, can grow and develop in this way. So what exactly. what can we do? Practic- the way in which you start that is yeah. always start by thinking, how does this other person, namely our students or employees or whatever it is, but how are our students seeing this? Um, our tendency is to be talking to others from our point of view. But if you really want to be supporting the motivation of others, you've got to be able to see the situation from their point of view. So once you can relate to them with an internal frame of reference, with their internal frame of reference, then you have much greater possibilities of encouraging them to do whatever it is we're talking about. Yeah, and and I think you know, in our in our workshops with faculty, we, we basically start from a deeper kind of listening for exactly uh-huh. <clears throat> for exactly that that reason. What else? What and we've got a we've got two minutes, uh, really about a minute left. So uh, briefly, what what else can we do in a practical way uh, that's consistent with the, what we know about the theory? 
Well, once you, once you think in terms of the other's perspective, then everything begins to fall out from there. Of course, you'll give them choice. Of course, you'll allow them and encourage them to explore and try new ways. Sometimes they'll fail. That's fine. We learn from failing. But if we can be supportive of them throughout that whole process, then um, we're going to be promoting the kind of education that we would like to see. Great. And so um, with uh, uh, with just about 30 seconds left, uh, uh, if, if listeners would like to find out more about your work, your books, uh, your uh-huh. writing, uh, where, where, can, where can they go to, uh, to, okay. to get a list? Self-determination theory, all one word, as if it were all one word. So the website, the SDT website is www.selfdeterminationtheory.org. So selfdeterminationtheory.org or just Google self-determination theory. So, anyways, thank, Ed. Thanks for um, for joining us. This has um, been great, and and uh, thanks for sharing uh, all that you've learned, uh, or much of a little bit of what you've learned with our our listeners today. Well, you've been thank listening. You for inviting oh, me. Th- uh, it's been been great. Thanks for coming on the show. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. A special thanks to our our guest, Ed DC. Help transform higher education and join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.